Good morning. As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and our minds to do that. Let's read it together. I will never forget your commands. They make me wiser than my enemies. Your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light to my path. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Again, that's Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other sinners, your Father will not forgive your sins. Thank you, Linda. Let's, uh, let's uh, begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was, um, this is a number of years ago, but I was uh, uh, sitting at lunch with a PhD student at a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it was a restaurant called The Kitchen, and we were having a great conversation about things you talk about in Colorado, like climbing mountains and uh, mountain biking and, uh, and, and food and, and just all kinds of different things. And the conversation um, turned religious. We started talking about religion. And uh, he, uh, this particular student, he was a, a PhD student in chemistry. And he said, I am definitely not a Christian. He said, honestly, I, fi I, I find many of Christianity's themes to be quite beautiful but I'm just not sure God exists. And he says, so I'm pretty sure that that disqualifies me from being a Christian. And then he paused, and he, he, I thought it was so interesting. He admitted, you know, he said, I always tell everyone that I'm an atheist, especially in my line of work. I'm a scientist. A lot of scientists are atheists. And he says, in my lab, that's just, um, that's just that's the norm. 
Um, he says, but then he kind of said, actually, that's kind of hypocritical. And he said, well, what's, what's hypocritical about that? He says, because it's not really true to my past and even my present. And he kind of sheepishly looked away and he said, as stupid as this may sound, throughout much of my life, especially when I was a kid, I found myself talking to God. So I guess for me to say that I'm an atheist would be to deny all that. Not only my actions, but my desires as well. Isn't that interesting? And why, would I, why would I begin with that story? Um, well, look, if you look at our text this morning, it says, it begins, Jesus begins with these words, and when you pray. See, if you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian, or even you would say, you know, I'm not religious at all, and you're about to hear a sermon on prayer, you may be tempted to tune out. But I am amazed. I'm amazed at how many self-described secular people, non-religious people, even atheists, will admit to talking to a non-physical entity, to a non-physical being. Then those moments... There's just this sense of desperation of need, and not just talking today, they're calling out to someone, they're calling in need. In fact, one of the foremost uh, Christian ethicists of our day, uh, um, Professor, uh, a former, uh, Professor Emeritus at uh, Oxford, wrote this about prayer. He says, prayer is such a human act that even those who acknowledge no positive belief in God or in prayer itself may catch themselves performing it. Isn't that amazing? There's something about prayer that we just, is very human. There's something about talking to someone that just seems strange. Why is there this impulse, this, this drive to talk to someone? Interesting. And even, even, and even in our daily routine, I don't know about you, but we, we, if we're not talking to God, we're at least talking to ourselves, right? Maybe you're commuting or you get in the morning and you have your routine, you're on your way to school, or you're, you're, uh, you're doing whatever it is you're doing, and it's the day you're sort of talking to someone, or at, least, at the very least we're talking to ourselves. We're almost like we're praying or meditating to ourselves, but we're always praying, in a sense. We're always speaking. And so when Jesus says, and when you pray, maybe he's speaking to, to more of us than we might think. In fact, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, as you begin your morning routine, ask yourself, with whom am I going to speak? Because you're going to be speaking to someone. Will it just be yourself? So the question is whether or not, the question isn't whether or not we're praying, it's actually how and to whom we're praying, as well as what we are to pray. And Jesus is going to, he's going to show us how to pray this morning. He's going to show, he's going to actually give us the words to speak. Before he does that, though, he's going to actually talk about how not to pray. Jesus actually gives us two ways in the text about how not to pray. He says, when you pray, see, Jesus says, do not pray in order first to create a fan club. Don't, don't pray to create a fan club. That is, don't pray in order to be known as better than you really are. Look in verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Understand here, the problem isn't primarily where they're praying, but why. They're praying to be seen by others. 
They pray to be known as better than they really are, hence their hypocrisy. Okay, so that's the idea, is that you, you, when we pray, and let me ask you, when, 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 has there ever been a time when you've prayed, let's say in a small group, or a, with, a, with a, a brother or sister in the Lord, you've prayed out loud, or maybe you've even just been talking, but you've prayed in such a way that the people around you might actually think less of you. You're confessing your sins. God, I'm so sorry for yelling at my wife the other day. I'm so sorry. I just, I don't want to forgive. I'm so resentful. The point isn't to like, to sort of grovel. The point isn't to somehow make it a, uh, it's not a contest of who's the worst person. But when we pray, we're not to pray, to create a fan club. To, I'm going to pray in this in such a way. And I tell you, as a minister, it's so easy to do that. I'm probably most guilty of that. Because I know I can pray, the, I, mean, I pray for a living, so to speak. I know how to pray. I can say these beautiful prayers. And Jesus says, that, that is, that's what the hypocrites do. Don't do it. When you pray, you simply say what's on your mind. Simply be yourself. So Jesus says, first, when you pray, don't, don't pray first to create a fan club. He says, second, do not pray in order to campaign for your cause. See, this first temptation to create a fan club, that's something that actually a lot of Christians, you know, people who are in the, in the church would be tempted to do. But the second, this second temptation is actually a way of praying that's actually more t- temptation for those outside of the community of faith. That is, when you, they, think, they think of prayer as simply going to God to get your way. You go to God to campaign for your cause. So again, the first, the first way not to pray is to create a fan club. The second way not to pray is to campaign for your cause. Again, the idea is, is that we're, we're, to, we're not to pray in order to be, to be better known by men, but neither are we to pray as if we know better than God. Does it make sense? Look at verse 7. Jesus says, When you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard, that is, they think they will get their way because of their many words. A prayer is this, this, this mantra, this, this form of manipulation. It's a way of getting what they want. But prayer isn't about us manipulating or bargaining with God to get our way. Okay, and we want to see how, why that is, okay? In fact, as one, uh, as one 20th century theologian, a guy named Karl Barth, said once, it's beautiful, he has a beautiful, um, uh, beautiful essay on the Lord's Prayer. He says this, he says, Jesus Christ asks us in the Lord's Prayer to join with him in his fight for God's cause. It's God's cause, not my cause, not yours. It's, it's God's cause. So again, when we pray, we are not to pray either to create a fan club nor to campaign for our own cause. So what are we to do? Jesus says that when we pray, we are simply to connect with our Father. Sounds so simple, and it is. We're just connecting with our Father. Six times in these verses that Linda read for us, Jesus refers to God as Father, as our Father, as your Father, Look at verse 6. Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Jesus describes God in these verses as an ever-gracious, all-wise Father. First, he's ever-gracious. Look at the end of verse 6. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Isn't that beautiful? 
He's ever gracious, ever giving, ever rewarding, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because he simply loves to give good gifts. Not only is he ever gracious, but he's all wise. I love this. Verse 8, Jesus says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that beautiful? He knows what you need. So when we pray, we're not going to pray to create a fan club. We're not going to pray to campaign for our own cause. We're simply going to pray to connect with our Heavenly Father, an ever and all-wise, ever-gracious Father. And in verses 9 through 14, Jesus gives us a basic outline for what to pray, which we, which we can summarize as follows. So footstop, listen to this. This is my summary of the Lord's Prayer. Father, stand out, take over, and set us free. Can you remember those three things? What's well, four? Father, but three petitions. Stand out, take over, and set us free. Isn't that beautiful? So the first, talk about this idea of father, or more fully, our father. In verses 9, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven. What does it mean to connect with God by addressing him as father? Now, well understood in its first century context, it means at least three things. First, it means we are addressing God as an authority figure. In the ancient world, a father had nearly limitless authority in the household. And even today, we, under, we understand that the phrase, because your father says so, ends the conversation, right? Or it should. Fathers, you have that, that, that right. You have that authority. God has given it to you, and your word is final. So there's an authority, there's a finality. In fact, often in my home, I love this, Julianne will sometimes say, well, dad is the boss. And I was like, that's right. She was like, well, dad, you can, you can eat food whenever you want. You can get a snack anytime you want to because you're the boss. I'm the boss. But it's not just about that authority. is isn't just about finality. It's not just about influence. It's about, listen to this, it's about expertise. It's the idea that, as the, the saying goes, father knows Best. That's right. Father knows best. There's a sense of it. He knows. He, he knows us better than we know ourselves. So we call, we go to the Father. We're addressing him as one who is authority. But second, it's when we address him as Father, there's a sense of identity in that. In the ancient world, who your Father was determined your status. It determined your identity. Even today, kids, I don't even do this on, on the playground. We may com- you compare dads. Oh, yeah, well, my dad was in the army. Oh, yeah, well, my dad was a, is a doctor. Whatever it may be, we compare our, 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 our dads in that sense. There's a sense of who I am comes from who my father is. Now, now, listen to this. Jesus is speaking almost exclusively to Jewish peasants in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. He is speaking to those who were exploited, who were ignored, to those who had been told so many times by society that they were worthless, and they believed it. And it's precisely to them that Jesus gives the right to call his father their father. Oh yeah? Well, my dad created the universe. Yeah, my dad... He saved me from all my sins. My dad is the judge of the living and the dead. So again, to call God Father means authority. It means identity. And, second, and third, it means initiation. 
initiation and affection. Needless to say, as you mothers are painfully aware, children do not have themselves. Right? They are usually the parent's idea, let's have a baby. But unlike with humans sometimes, God never accidentally has a child. Each and every one of us is God's idea. Think about that. God wanted you. He knew exactly what he was doing when he chose you, when he adopted you into his family. Listen to this. When he looks at you, yes, you and all of your, on all of your failure and all of your frailty and all of your uncertainty, your fickleness, never is he ashamed of you. Never does he have any regrets about you. Never does he second guess applying the blood of his son to you. Never does he roll his eyes at you or check his watch. And he wants to hear from you. Gang, he wants to hear from you. Even though he knows what you need before you ask him. So when we, and when, we, when we pray, our Father, we remember that this, this is true for all of God's children, for all of them, for all of us. So when we pray, Father, second we are to ask him, what, listen, to stand out. Father, stand out. What does that mean, to stand out? That is, show the world that there's no one like you. Verse 9 says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Kids, do you know what a name is? Right? It's, a, it's a person's reputation. It's who they are, right? And to hallow something means to make it holy. That is to make it different, to make it special, to make it stand out. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying, Father, stand out so that everyone will know that there's no one like you. There's no one as strong as you are. There's no one as sly or as shrewd as you are. There's no one who acts in ways that no one can see coming. There's no one as completely independent and self-sufficient as you. He doesn't need us, but he, but he wants us. There's no one as slow to anger as he is. There's no one who loves to say, I forgive you as much as he does. You see, there's no one like him. And it's this idea that what can happen in the Christian life is that God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the very first, the very first plea, the very first, uh, the very first petition is this longing for God to show him as he, to show himself as he really is, for us not to minimize him, to underestimate him, to relativize him, to make him so that he's somehow no big deal. There is no one like God. There is no one who loves justice as much as he does. There's no one who, others, listen, the world will forget the wrongs done to you. Like I was just, the other day, I was um, reading about a, a man who, uh, who was, um, you know, experienced the worst form of, of abuse as a, as a child um, at the hands of religious authorities. And as a, as a, as a teenager, he went to his mom and told him, told her, what had happened, and uh, she, did, she, didn't, she, did, she wouldn't believe him. And can you imagine? I can't begin to imagine what that would be like. Your own mom won't recognize the wrongs done to you, the grievous 
wrongs done to you. He knows, and he will never forget. He will make sure that those wrongs are addressed one day. He loves justice. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Now, why does, why does Jesus make this the first petition? It almost seems a little self-centered of God, right? Just, well, just make sure God's name's defended. Make sure he stands out. Make sure God gets all the attention he apparently needs. It's not like that. Here's the, here's the deal, gang. When God is known for who he is, it changes everything. Again, the last characteristic that I just mentioned, that he loves justice. There's no one who loves justice as much as he does. He's never indifferent, and he never forgets. He remembers. And that changes everything. Because if you have been wronged deeply, and the temptation is to lash out, isn't it? To, 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 to respond in kind. Kids, someone hits you, your, your brother or sister hits you, what do you want to do? You want to hit him back. You get so ruled by anger, by bitterness. But if you know there is a God who, is, who, who, who will fight for you, who, is, who knows and who will repay, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Isn't that amazing? Like, leave room. Like, step aside. Like, get out of the way. Because God's anger is perfect. His justice will be perfectly applied. And so he says, Paul says, walk away. Walk away. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. As it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. So if we know God, we know about God's wrath, we know about his anger, we're not minimizing that we see it in all of its horror and all its terror. We see that he is a God who avenges. We are free. We're free from anger. We're free from resentment. We're free to actually love our enemies. See, knowing God's character, hallowing his name, having him stand out makes all the difference in the world. And that's why it's the first petition let me give you a, a brief second example here. In our congregation devotional, if you don't have one yet, I want to encourage you. I've got a few copies here, but I really want to encourage you. I've just started reading this. Again, it's Tim Keller. It's called The Songs of Jesus. We'll be walk, walking through this year, 2021, with this devotional. And in yesterday's devotional, listen to what he says. This is so, I thought it was so good. It's on Psalm 2. He said, each day the media highlights new things to fear. Isn't that the tree? Can I get an amen? Right? Each day, the media highlights new things to hear. The powers that be in society tell us that obedience to God shackles us, that it limits our freedom. In, in reality, liberation comes only through serving the one who created us. And he continues, those people and forces that appear to rule the world are all under his lordship. And one day they will know it. God still reigns. And we can take refuge in him from all our fears. That's, I read you almost the entire devotional. So it takes 30 seconds. Grab the book each day being exposed. This is the Psalms. It's so rich. It's so devotional. It's so relevant. Because it's about God's character. It's about the Psalms hollow 
God's name. Okay, so Father, stand out. Ready? Second, take over. Verse 10, we read, May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, when our Heavenly Father stands out, that is, when we come to see Him for who He really is, we will want Him to be in charge of everything. Wow. Let's put this guy in charge. Those of you kids, you know the story of Joseph? Remember how he was in prison? And, uh, the, and the, the, one of his servants remembered that Joseph was able to interpret dreams, and so the, they, they had them brought before the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh told him his dreams, and, 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 and Joseph was able to int- interpret them, right? And when he was able to interpret them, what did the Pharaoh say? Let's put this guy in charge. He knows he has the wisdom. And that's exactly what we're doing. When we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, we're saying, look, You've got all this figured out. You are wise. You are gracious. You are all powerful. You're all knowing. I want you to be in charge. I want you to get your way. I want you to take over. And we see all the mess inside ourselves. We see all the evil around ourselves. We ask him, oh, please take over. Now look, again, this is really important. Whether we have called ourselves Christians for decades or we're considering it for the first time, just even today, If we want to understand what following Jesus is all about, these two petitions stand out, take over. They're absolutely crucial. The first says, stand out, show me who you really are. Keep me from domesticating you and underestimating you with ideas of how you should be. The second says, Father, take over. Take take especially me over. I don't want to be in the driver's seat anymore. I don't want to, you take the reins, you call the shots, because when I call the shots, things just get worse. See, far, for far too many of us Christians, we have skipped these opening petitions. Bored by God, the God that we've created, the God that we've domesticated, and being unwilling to get out of the driver's seat, just thirsting for control, we have skipped straight to forgive us our debts. And that's important. But forgiveness isn't just about convenience. Okay? So if we really wanted God to take over our lives, what would it look like? Wouldn't it include having deep relationships with persons who will love you and comfort you? Wouldn't it include having church leaders who love you enough to, to, uh, who will challenge you from the pulpit and in the counseling office? See, I just... Um, at any given time, uh, in, when I was doing ministry to young adults, this was, a, this was in 2014-15 uh, time frame, if I remember right. There was a, a bunch of young adults, 20-somethings, about 125 or so. And um, there would always be a certain segment of that group at any time that didn't like me very much. <laughs> Uh, through, through teaching, through discipleship, through counseling, I would challenge them on the cost of discipleship. These are 20-somethings with very capable, very common, a lot of them grad students. They, live, they do whatever they want with their lives. And I'm challenging them with the cost of discipleship. Jesus is calling. You can't just do whatever you want to do. And after one particularly challenging pastoral interaction, uh, it was with, with, with a particular, uh, particular a, a great guy, just the neatest guy, the next day I texted him. Because I challenged him one thing. He just did not like it at all. I said, hey, how are you? The reply, 
still mad at you, but good. I love that. That's honest. I mean, a lot of times people under my pastoral care, I, I challenge them. They either peace out and they're gone or they just don't like me, they don't speak to me anymore. It was actually, you actually responded. He said, still mad at you, but good. And then came a second reply. I don't like you, Bruce, but I'm grateful for you. And he was, he was you know, he's tongue in cheek. See, to be really, to, to, to say, take over, God. It's to say, you know, I actually want to be fully known. I actually want to be challenged. I want to be confronted. I want to, I want to be loved. I want to be accountable. It's a scary thing. See, the truth is all of us are like these debt-ridden companies, Radio Shack, whatever, that are just, that need, they're dying for a takeover. They're dying for someone to come in who can manage the business, get things straightened out, take over. So, Father, stand out, take over, and finally set us free. Set us free in two ways. First, set us free from self-reliance. In verse 11, he calls us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We could probably translate it, give us today only the bread we need for tomorrow. My kids, I tell you, my kids, um, they never, you know, they never ask. For example, Julianne, she never says, you know, what if I were to get enough food for the next couple of weeks? just to make sure, right? No, she just knows that every single, every single breakfast, lunch, or dinner is going to be there. I mean, she, she, she never says, you know, hey, maybe you'll forget to feed, it, feed me. No, she's never done that. She, she, knows, she doesn't because she knows her parents, or at least her mother, are reliable, right? There's a reliability. The petition for daily bread says, Father, show us how reliable you are. Set us free from our self-reliance. Set us free from our fears and anxieties. Set us free from the exhausting slavery to an ever-elusive self-reliance. Right? This pot at the end of the rainbow. The sense of financial security that is so elusive. Let me trust you to provide for me. So we're asking for our Father to set us free, first from self-reliance, but also from sin. In verse 12, Jesus says that we are to pray, Father, we are to pray, forgive, and here the word forgive means release, Release us, set us free from our debts as we forgive or set it free our debtors. And here's a bitter, see, here's the bitter thing about the past. The past is bitter because it can't be undone. You just can't change it. It's done. Whether sins from the previous day or the previous decade, they can haunt us, can't they? They just haunt us. They weigh us down. They lead us into the prison of regret, the prison of missed opportunity, the prison of alienation from others, distance from God, distance from others. I don't know if you know the, the, the singer-songwriter Patty Griffin. There's a beautiful song called Railroad Wings. Most of her songs are quite, uh, quite uh, sad. She, uh, she writes, listen to these lyrics. She says, there's, there's things I'll never tell you till the day I die. Things I've done I can never undo, hiding everything. Do you hear the slavery? Listen, sin traps it enslaves, but close to the heart of Christianity is the idea that the actions of our past 
need not determine our future. If we have a Heavenly Father whose three favorite words are, I forgive you. And if if his opinion is the only opinion that really matters, we can confess our sins to him and to those whom we have wronged, and we will know freedom. Freedom. And so we're asking him in the petition to remind us regularly of the forgiveness that we have. See, we can, we, can, we can go to him and we can say, Father, set us free from self-reliance. Set us free from sin. I'm going to add a third one here. Set us free from Satan. In verse 13, Jesus commands us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, set us free from the evil one. The portrait of the evil one that Jesus gives us in the Gospels focuses on one thing. Deception. Satan, the evil one, is a deceiver. Matthew 5, 37 says this, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. John 8, 44, Jesus says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we we pray in the petition, set us free from self-reliance, set us free from sin, set us free from Satan. How many times in my marriage have I used words as weapons in a way that I become a mouthpiece for the evil one to speak lies to my wife and to my kids? Just the other day, it's on Christmas Day actually, I was, uh, I was in the evening, Sarah was playing music for us, and I just said some, I mean, there was an interaction, and I just said some really harsh words to Rosemary. Really harsh words. I mean, just I, what I said was true, but I said it in a hopeless way. I said it in a cynical way. I said it in a demeaning way. Well, it's true. It's true. Yeah, it's true, but it's also hopeless. It's gospelless. It's graceless, and therefore it's a lie. See, the best lies are mostly true, aren't they? So when we pray, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one, we're saying, God, de- please deliver us from believing the lies that the evil one would have us believe. Lies about ourselves. I'm worthless. Nobody wants me. I'm useless. Lies about others. They're, they're just horrible. They're just awful. There's nothing good about them. Or they're amazing. They're my savior. I need them. Or lies about God. Deliver us from the evil one. Okay, so let's, let's conclude here. Let's land the plane. Jesus says when we are to pray, we, we, do, we, we don't pray either to create a fan club or to campaign for our own cause, but we pray to connect with our Heavenly Father, a Father who's authoritative, who's intentional, who's affectionate, who wants us, who has pursued us, who's adopted us, who's brought us into our family, who has never regretted shedding the blood of His Son for us. And we say, Father, Stand up. Take over. Set us free from our self-reliance, from our sin, and from Satan. I'm going to conclude, as Jesus does here, with both words of encouragement and admonition. When he says in verses 14 and 15, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Father, your, Father, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive 
your sins? How do we know that God has set us free from our sin? I mean, you really want to know, like, for sure. You want a litmus test, concrete litmus test, to know whether or not God has forgiven you your sins. It's simply this. When we are able to set others free from their sins, I cannot show mercy if I do not know mercy. Does that make sense? I cannot show grace and forgiveness to others if I have myself have not received that same grace. Let me conclude with this. The first century Roman historian Suetonius, he, was a, had a, he, had a, he had this uh, series of biographies he did. He did a biography of Julius Caesar. And it says that after Julius Caesar had conquered and governed Gaul, that is modern-day France, for nine years, he had created, uh, Caesar had acquired so much wealth that he was able to win most all of his enemies' friends and most of the Senate when he returned to Rome. <laughs> Listen to this. The Suetonius writes, by giving them, by giving these various, so he comes back to Rome, let me give the context a little bit. He goes back to Rome, and of course, like any, like any person his size, he would have these enemies. But what he did, he's able with his money, he was able to, all of his enemies' friends and most of his enemies' servants, he was able to go to them and basically say, what debts do you have? I got you. And he covered the debts of like most of the Senate. He came back with so much money. And, it says, and Suetonius writes, by giving them loans at a lower interest rate or even interest-free, Caesar also endeared himself to persons of less distinction too by handing out valuable presents whether or not they asked for them. His beneficiaries included even the favorite slaves and freedmen of prominent men. Caesar thus became the one reliable source of help to all who were in legal difficulties or in debt or living beyond their means. And he refused to help only those whose criminal record was so black or whose purse was so empty or whose tastes were so expensive that he, he even, not even he could do anything for them. He frankly told such people, what you need is a civil war. Isn't that crazy? So listen, our God is a God who loves to forgive even 10,000 talents. Isn't that beautiful? A 10,000 talent sinner, that's what we are. Let's be, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to celebrate this meal together. It's a meal that is precisely for sinners. Let's, uh, let's, go, let's bow our heads in prayer.